16. Sar NNM. The priests do mention the gods' war sometimes, mainly as a warning against heresy. Because of Enepha, they say. Because of the betrayer, for three days people and animals lay helpless and gasping for air, hearts gradually slowing and bellies bloating as their bowels ceased to function. Plants wilted and died in hours, vast fertile plains turned to gray desert. Meanwhile, the sea we now call repentance boiled, and for some reason all the tallest mountains were split in half. The priests say that was the work of the godlings, Enepha's immortal offspring, who each took sides and battled across the earth. Their fathers, the lords of the sky, mostly kept their fight up there. Because of Enepha, the priests say. They do not say, because Etempus killed her. When the war finally ended, most of the world was dead. What remained was forever changed. In my land, hunters pass down legends of beasts that no longer exist. Harvest songs praise staples long lost. Those first Aramary did a great deal for the survivors, the priests are careful to note. With the magic of their war prisoner gods, they replenished the oceans, sealed the mountains, healed the land. Though there was nothing to be done for the dead, they saved as many as they could of the survivors. For a price. The priests don't mention that either. There had in fact been very little business to discuss. In light of the looming ceremony, the Enafada needed my cooperation more than ever, and so, with palpable annoyance, Kurue agreed to my condition. We all knew there was little chance I could become Descartes' heir. We all knew the Enafada were merely humoring me. I was content with that, so long as I did not think about it too deeply. Then one by one they vanished, leaving me with Nahadoth. He was the only one, Kurure had said, who had the power to carry me to and from Dar in the night's few remaining hours. So in the silence that fell, I turned to face the night lord. How? he asked. The vision, he meant, of his defeat. I don't know, I said. But it's happened before. I had a dream once, of the old sky. I saw you destroy it. I swallowed, chilled. I thought it was just a dream. But if what I just saw is what really happened memories. I was experiencing Enepha's memories. Dearest Skyfather, I did not want to think about what that meant. His eyes narrowed. He wore that face again, the one I feared because I could not help wanting it. I fixed my eyes on a point just above his shoulder. It is what happened, he said slowly. But Enepha was dead by then. She never saw what he did to me. And I wish I hadn't. But before I could speak, Nahadoth took a step toward me. I very quickly took a step back, and he stopped. You fear me now? You did try to rip out my soul. And yet you still desire me. I froze. Of course he would have sensed that. I said nothing, unwilling to admit weakness. Nahadoth moved past me to the window. I shivered as he passed. A tendril of his cloak had curled round my calf for just an instant in a cool caress. I wondered if he was even aware of this. What exactly do you hope to accomplish, Indar? he asked. I swallowed, glad to be on another subject. I need to speak with my grandmother. I thought of using a sigil sphere, but I don't understand such things. There could be a way for others to eavesdrop on our conversation. There is. It gave me no pleasure to be right then the questions must be asked in person. What questions? Whether it's true what Ra's Onchi and Samina said about Dar's neighbors arming for war. I want to hear my grandmother's assessment of the situation. And I hope to learn. I felt inexplicably ashamed. More about my mother. Whether she was like the rest of the Aramary. I have already told you she was. You will forgive me, Lord Nahadov, if I do not trust you. He turned slightly so that I could see the side of his smile. She was, he repeated, and so are you. The words in his cold voice hit me like a slap. She did this too, he continued. She was your age, perhaps younger, when she began asking questions. Questions, so many questions. When she could not get answers from us with politeness, she commanded them, as you have done. 
such hate there was in her young heart, like yours. I fought the urge to swallow, certain he would hear it. What sort of questions? Aramary history, the war between my siblings and I, many things. Why? I have no idea. You didn't ask? I didn't care. I took a deep breath and forced my sweaty fist to unclench. This was his way, I reminded myself. There had been no need for him to say anything about my mother. He just knew it was the way to unsettle me. I had been warned. Nahadoth didn't like to kill outright. He teased and tickled until you lost control, forgot the danger, and opened yourself to him. He made you ask for it. After I had been silent for a few breaths, Nahadoth turned to me. The night is half over. If you mean to go to Dar, it should be now. Oh, ah, uh, yes. Swallowing, I looked around the room, anywhere but at him. How will we travel? In answer, Nahadoth extended his hand. I wiped my hand unnecessarily on my skirt and took it. The blackness that surrounded him flared like lifting wings, filling the room to its arched ceiling. I gasped and would have stepped back, but his hand became a vice on my own. When I looked at his face, I felt ill. His eyes had changed. They were all black now, iris and whites alike. Worse, the shadows nearest his body had deepened, so much that he was invisible beyond his extended hand. I stared into the abyss of him and could not bring myself to go closer. If I meant to kill you, he said, and his voice was different, too, echoing, shadowed. It would already be too late. There was that. So I looked up into those terrible eyes, mustered my courage, and said, Please take me to Arabaya, in Dar, the temple of Sar Enanem. The blackness at his core expanded so swiftly to envelop me that I had no time to cry out. There was an instant of unbearable cold and pressure, so great I thought it would crush me. But it stopped short of pain, and then even the cold vanished. I opened my eyes and saw nothing. I stretched out my hands, including the hand that I knew he held, and felt nothing. I cried out and heard only silence. Then I stood on stone and breathed air laden with familiar scents and felt warm humidity soak into my skin. Behind me spread the stone streets and walls of Arabaya, filling the plateau on which we stood. It was later in the night than it had been in sky, I could tell, because the streets were all but empty. Before me rose stone steps, lined on either side by standing lanterns, at the top of which were the gates to Sar Ananem. I turned back to Nahadoth, who had reverted to his usual just shy of human appearance. You are welcome in my family's home, I said. I was still shivering from our mode of travel. I know. He strode up the steps. Caught off guard, I stared at his back for ten steps before remembering myself and trotting to follow. Sar and Anem's gates are heavy, ugly wood and metal affairs, a more recent addition to the ancient stone. It took at least four women to work the mechanism that swung them open, which made a vast improvement over the days when the gates had been made of stone and needed twenty openers. I had arrived unannounced in the small hours of the morning and knew that this meant upsetting the entire guard staff. We had not been attacked in centuries, but my people prided themselves on vigilance nonetheless. They might not let us in, I murmured, drawing alongside the night lord. I was hard-pressed to keep up. He was taking the steps two at a time. Nahadoth said nothing in reply and did not slow his pace. I heard the loud, echoing sound of the great latch lifting, and then the gates swung open, on their own. I groaned, realizing what he'd done. Of course, there were shouts and running feet as we passed through, and as we stepped onto the grassy patch that served as Sar and Anem's forecourt, two clusters of guards came running forth from the ancient edifice's doors. One was the gate company, just men, since it was a lowly position that required only brute strength. The other company was the standing guard, composed of women and those few men who had earned the honor, distinguished by white silk tunics under the armor. This one was led by a familiar face, Emyan, a woman from my own Somem tribe. She shouted in our language as she reached the forecourt, 
and the company split to surround us. Very quickly, we were surrounded by a ring of spears and arrows pointed at our hearts. No, their weapons were pointed at my heart, I noticed. Not a single one of them had aimed at Nahadoth. I stepped in front of Nahadoth to make it easier for them and to signal my friendliness. For a moment, it felt strange to speak in my own tongue. It's good to see you, Captain Emyan. I don't know you, she said curtly. I almost smiled. As girls, we had gotten into all manner of mischief together. Now she was as committed to her duty as I. You laughed the first time you saw me, I said. I'd been trying to grow my hair longer, thinking to look like my mother. You said it looked like curly tree moss. Emyan's eyes narrowed. Her own hair, long and beautifully dare straight, had been arranged in an efficient braids and knot behind her head. What are you doing here if you're Yena Enu? You know I'm no longer Enu, I said. The Tempins have been announcing it all week, by word of mouth and by magic. Even High North should have heard by now. Emyan's arrow wavered for a moment longer, then slowly came down. Following her lead, the other guards lowered their weapons as well. Emyan's eyes shifted to Nahadoth, then back to me, and for the first time there was a hint of nervousness in her manner. And this? You know me, Nahadoth said in our language. No one flinched at the sound of his voice. Darren guards are too well trained for that, but I saw not a few exchanged looks of unease among the group. Nahadoth's face, I noticed belatedly, had begun to waver again a watery blur that shifted with the torchlight shadows. So many new mortals to seduce. Emyan recovered first. Lord Nahadoth, she said at last. Welcome back. Back? I stared at her, then at Nahadoth. But then a more familiar voice greeted me, and I let out a breath of tension I hadn't realized that I felt. You are indeed welcome, said my grandmother. She came down the short flight of steps that led to Sar and Anem's living quarters, and the guards parted before her, a shorter-than-average elderly woman still clad in a sleeping tunic, though she'd taken the time to strap on her knife, I noted. Tiny as she was, I had unfortunately inherited her size. She exuded an air of strength and authority that was almost palpable. She inclined her head to me as she came. Yena, I've missed you but not so much that I wanted to see you back so soon. She glanced at Nahadoth, then back at me. Come. And that was that. She turned to head into the columned entrance, and I moved to follow, or would have, had Nahadoth not spoken. Dawn is closer here, to this part of the world, he said. You have an hour. I turned, surprised on several levels. You aren't coming? No and he walked away, off to the side of the forecourt. The guards moved out of his way with an alacrity that might have been amusing under other circumstances. I watched him for a moment, then moved to follow my grandmother. Another tale from my childhood occurs to me here. It is said the Night Lord cannot cry. No one knows the reason for this, but of the many gifts that the forces of the Maelstrom bestowed upon their darkest child, the ability to cry was not one of them. Brighty Tempest can. Legends say his tears are the rain that sometimes falls while the sun still shines. I have never believed this legend, because it would mean he Tempest cries rather frequently. Enifa of the earth could cry. Her tears took the form of the yellow burning rain that falls around the world after a volcano has erupted. It still falls, this rain, killing crops and poisoning water. But now it means nothing. Night Lord Nahadoth was first born of the three. Before the others appeared, he spent countless eons as the only living thing in all of existence. Perhaps that explains his inability. Perhaps, amid so much loneliness, tears become ultimately useless. Sar Enenem was once a temple. Its main entrance is a vast and vaulted hall supported by columns hewn whole from the earth erected by my people in a time long before we knew of such ominous innovations as scrivening or clockwork. We had our own techniques back then, and the places we built to honor the gods were magnificent. After the gods' war, 
my ancestors did what had to be done. Sar and Anem's twilight and moon windows, once famed for their beauty, were bricked up, leaving only the sun. A new temple, dedicated exclusively to Etempas and untainted by the devotion once offered to his siblings, was built some ways to the south. That is the current religious heart of the city. Sar and Anem was repurposed as nothing more than a hall of government, from which our warrior council issued edicts that I, as Enu, once implemented. Any holiness was long gone. The hall was empty, as befitted the late hour. My grandmother led me to the raised plinth where, during the day, the warrior's council members sat on a circle of thick rugs. She took a seat. I took one opposite. Have you failed? she asked. Not yet, I replied, but that is only a matter of time. Explain, she said. So I did. I will admit I edited the account somewhat. I did not tell her of the hours I wasted in my mother's chambers weeping. I did not mention my dangerous thoughts about Nahadoth, and I most certainly did not speak of my two souls. When I was done, she sighed, the only sign of her concern. Kenneth always believed Akarta's love for her would safeguard you. I cannot say I ever liked her, but over the years I grew to trust her judgment. How could she have been so wrong? I'm not certain she was, I said softly. I was thinking of Nahadolf's words about Jakarta and my mother's murder. You think it was him? I had spoken with Jakarta since then. I had seen his eyes while he spoke of my mother. Could a man like him murder someone he loved so much? What did mother tell you, Beba? I asked, about why she left the Aramary. My grandmother frowned, taken aback by my shift from formality. We had never been close, she and I. She had been too old to become Enu when her own mother finally died, and none of her children had been girls. Though my father had managed against all odds to succeed her, becoming one of only three male Enu ever in our history, I was the closest thing to a daughter she would ever have. I, the half-amen embodiment of her son's greatest mistake. I had given up on trying to earn her love years before. It was not something she spoke of much, Beba said, speaking slowly. She said she loved my son. That couldn't possibly have been sufficient for you, I said softly. Her eyes hardened. Your father made it clear that it would have to be. And then I understood. She had never believed my mother. What do you think was the reason, then? She was full of anger, your mother. She wanted to hurt someone, and being with my son allowed her to accomplish that. Someone in Sky? I don't know. Why does this concern you, Yena? It's now that matters, not twenty years ago. I think what happened then has bearing on now, I said, surprising myself. But it was true, I realized at last. Perhaps I had felt that all along, and with that opening, I readied my next attack. Nahadoth has been here before, I see. At this, my grandmother's face resumed its usual stern frown. Lord, Nahadoth Yena, we are not Amun here. We respect our creators. The guard have drilled in how to approach him. A shame I wasn't included. I could have used that training myself before I went to Sky. When did he come here last, Beba? Before you were born. He came to see Kenneth once, Yena. This isn't... Was it after father recovered from the walking death? I asked. I spoke softly, though the blood was pounding in my ears. I wanted to reach over and shake her but I kept control. Was that the night they did it to me? Beba's frown deepened, momentary confusion becoming alarm. Did? To you? What are you talking about? You weren't even born at that point. Kenneth was barely pregnant. What did... And then she trailed off. I saw thoughts racing behind her eyes, which widened as they stared at me. I spoke to those thoughts, teasing out the knowledge that I sensed behind them. Mother tried to kill me when I was born. I knew why, now. But there was more truth here, something I hadn't discovered yet. I could feel it. They didn't trust her alone with me for months, do you remember? Yes, she whispered. I know she loved me, I said. And I know that sometimes women go mad in childbearing. 
Whatever it was that made her fear me then, I nearly choked on the obfuscation. I had never been a good liar. It faded and she became a good mother thereafter. But you must have wondered, Beba, what it was that she feared so. And my father must have wondered. I trailed off then, as awareness struck. Here was a truth I had not considered. No one wondered. I jumped and whirled. Nahadoth stood fifty feet away at the entrance of Sar and Anem, framed by its triangle design. With the moonlight behind him, he was a stark silhouette, but as always, I could see his eyes. I killed anyone who saw me with Kenneth that night, he said. We both heard him as clearly as if he stood right beside us. I killed her maid, and the child who came to serve us wine, and the man who sat with your father while he recovered from the sickness. I killed the three guards who tried to eavesdrop on this old woman's orders. He nodded toward Beba, who stiffened. After that, no one dared to wonder about you. So you've decided to talk, I would have asked him. But then my grandmother did something so unexpected, so incredible, so stupid, that the words stopped in my throat. She leapt to her feet and moved in front of me, drawing her knife. What did you do to Yena? she cried. I have never in my life seen her so angry. What foulness did the Aramary put you up to? She is mine. She belongs to us. You had no right. Nahadoth laughed then, and the whiplashing rage in that sound sent a chill down my spine. Had I thought him merely an embittered slave, a pitiable creature burdened by grief? I was a fool. You think this temple protects you? he hissed. Only then did I realize he had not actually stepped over the threshold. Have you forgotten that your people once worshipped me here too? He stepped into Sar and Anem. The rugs beneath my knees vanished. The floor, which had been planks of wood, disintegrated. Underneath was a mosaic of polished, semi-precious tiles, stones of every color interspersed with squares of gold. I gasped as the column shuddered and the bricks exploded into nothingness, and suddenly I could see the three windows, not just sun, but moon and twilight too. I had never realized they were meant to be viewed together. We had lost so much, and all around us stood the statues of being so perfect, so alien, so familiar, that I wanted to weep for all of Sia's lost brothers and sisters, Enifa's loyal children, slaughtered like dogs for trying to avenge their mother's murder. I understand, all of you. I understand so much. And then the torchlight went out, and the air creaked, and I turned to see that Nahadoth had changed as well. Night's darkness now filled that end of Sar Enanem, but it was not like my first night in sky. Here, fueled by the residue of ancient devotion, he showed me all he had once been. First among gods, sweet dream and nightmare incarnate, all things beautiful and terrible. Through a hurricane swirl of blue-black unlight, I caught a glimpse of moon-white skin and eyes like distant stars. Then they warped into something so unexpected that my brain refused to interpret it for an instant. But the library embossing had warned me, hadn't it? A woman's face shone at me from the darkness, proud and powerful and so breathtaking that I yearned for her as much as I had for him. And it did not seem strange at all that I did so. And then the face shifted again into something that in no way resembled human, something tentacled and toothed and hideous, and I screamed. Then there was only darkness where his face should have been, and that was the most frightening of all. He stepped forward again. I felt it. An impossible, invisible vastness moved with him. I heard the walls of Sar and Anem groan, too flimsy to contain such power. The whole world could not contain this. I heard the sky above Dar rumble with thunder. The ground beneath my feet trembled. White teeth gleamed amid the darkness, sharp like wolves. That was when I knew I had to act, or the Night Lord would kill my grandmother right before my eyes.
right before my, right before my eyes she lies, sprawled and naked and bloody. This is not flesh. This is all you can comprehend. But it means the same thing as flesh. She is dead and violated. Her perfect form torn in ways that should not be possible. Should not be. And who has done this? Who could have? What did it mean that he made love to me before driving the knife home? And then it hits. Betrayal. I had known of his anger, but never once did I imagine. Never once had I dreamt. I had dismissed her fears. I thought I knew him. I gather her body to mine and will all of creation to make her live again. We are not built for death, but nothing changes. Nothing changes. There was a hell that I built long ago, and it was a place where everything remained the same forever because I could imagine nothing more horrific. And now I am there. Then others come, our children, and all react with equal horror. In a child's eyes, a mother is God. But I can see nothing of their grief through the black mist of my own. I lay her body down, but my hands are covered in her blood. Our blood. Sister, lover, pupil, teacher, friend, other self. And when I lift my head to scream out my fury, a million stars turn black and die. No one can see them, but they are my tears. I blinked. Sar Enanem was as it had been, shadowed and quiet, its splendor hidden again beneath bricks and dusty wood and old rugs. I stood in front of my grandmother, though I did not remember getting up or moving. Nahadoth's human mask was back in place, his aura diminished to its usual quiet drift, and once again he was staring at me. I covered my eyes with one hand. I can't take much more of this. Yena? My grandmother. She put a hand on my shoulder. I barely noticed. It's happening, isn't it? I looked up at Nahadoth. What you expected? Her soul is devouring my own. No, said Nahadoth very softly. I don't know what this is. I stared at him and could not help myself. All the shock and fear and anger of the past few days bubbled up, and I burst out laughing. I laughed so loudly that it echoed from Sar and Anem's distant ceiling, so long that my grandmother peered at me in concern, no doubt wondering if I had gone mad. I probably had, because suddenly my laughter turned to screaming and my mirth ignited as white-hot rage. How can you not know? I shrieked at Nahado. I had lapsed into cinemite again. You're a god. How can you not know? His calm stoked my fury higher. I built uncertainty into this universe, and Enifa wove that into every living being. There will always be mysteries beyond even we gods' understanding. I launched myself at him. In the interminable second that my mad rage lasted, I saw that his eyes flicked to my approaching fist and widened in something very like amazement. He had plenty of time to block or evade the blow. That he did not was a complete surprise. The smack of it echoed as loud as my grandmother's gasp. In the ensuing silence, I felt empty. The rage was gone. Horror had not yet arrived. I lowered my hand to my side. My knuckles stung. Nahadoth's head had turned with the blow. He lifted a hand to his lip, which was bleeding, and sighed. I must work harder to keep my temper around you, he said. You have a memorable way of chastising me. He lifted his eyes, and suddenly I knew he was remembering the time I had stabbed him. I have waited so long for you, he had said then. This time, instead of kissing me, he reached out and touched my lips with his fingers. I felt warm wetness and reflectively licked, tasting cool skin and the metallic salt of his blood. He smiled, his expression almost fond. Do you like the taste? Not of your blood, no. But your finger was another matter. Yena, said my grandmother again, breaking the tableau. I took a deep breath, marshaled my wits, 
and turned back to her. Are the neighboring kingdoms allying? I asked. Are they arming for war? She swallowed before nodding. We received formal notice this week, but there had been earlier signs. Our merchants and diplomats were expelled from Menche almost two months ago. They say old Gimmet has passed a conscription law to boost the ranks of his army, and he's accelerated training for the rest. The council believes he'll march in a week, maybe less. Two months ago? I had been summoned to Sky only a short while before that. Samina had guessed my purpose the instant Dakarta summoned me, and it made sense she had chosen to act through Menche. Menche was Dar's largest and most powerful neighbor, once our greatest enemy. We had been at peace with the Mencheyev since the God's War, but only because the Aramari had been unwilling to grant either land permission to annihilate the other. But as Raz Onchi had warned me, things had changed. Of course they had submitted a formal war petition. They would want the right to shed our blood. I would hope we had begun to muster forces as well, in the time since, I said. It was no longer my place to give orders. I could only suggest. My grandmother sighed. As best we could. Our treasury is so depleted, we can barely afford to feed them, much less train and equip. No one will lend us funds. We've resorted to asking for volunteers. Any woman with a horse and her own weapons? Men as well, if they're not yet fathers. It was very bad if the council had resorted to recruiting men. By tradition, men were our last line of defense, their physical strength bent toward the single and most important task of protecting our homes and children. This meant the council had decided that our only defense was to defeat the enemy, period. Anything else meant the end of the Dare. I'll give you what I can, I said. Descartes watches everything I do, but I have wealth now, and... No. Beba touched my shoulder again. I could not remember the last time she had touched me without reason. But then, I had never seen her leap to protect me from danger either. It pained me that I would die young and never truly know her. Look to yourself, she said. Dar is not your concern. Not any longer. I scowled. It will always be. You said yourself. They would use us to hurt you. Look what's happened just from your effort to restore trade. I opened my mouth to protest that this was merely their excuse, but before I could, Nahadoth's head turned sharply east. The sun comes, he said. Beyond Sar and Anem's entry arch, the sky was pale. Night had faded quickly. I cursed under my breath. I will do what I can. Then, on impulse, I stepped forward and wrapped my arms around her and held her tight as I had never dared to do before in my whole life. She held stiff against me for a moment, surprised, but then sighed and rested her hands on my back. So much like your father, she whispered. Then she pushed me away gently. Nahado's arm folded around me, surprisingly gentle, and I found my back pressed against the human solidity of the body within his shadows. Then the body was gone, and so was Sar Ananem, and all was cold and darkness again. I reappeared in my room in sky, facing the windows. The sky here was still mostly dark, though there was a hint of pale against the distant horizon. I was alone, to my surprise, but also to my relief. It had been a very long, very difficult day. Without undressing, I lay down, but sleep did not come immediately. I lay where I was a while, reveling in the silence, letting my mind rest. Like bubbles in still water, two things rose to the surface of my thoughts. My mother had regretted her bargain with the Enifada. She had sold me to them, but not without qualm. I found it perversely comforting that she had tried to kill me at birth. That seemed like her, choosing to destroy her own flesh and blood rather than let it be corrupted. Perhaps she had only decided to accept me on her terms. Later, without the heady rush of new motherhood to color her feelings, when she could look into my eyes and see that one of the souls in them was my own. The other thought was simpler, yet far less comforting. Had my father known...
17. Relief During those nights, those dreams, I saw through a thousand eyes, bakers, blacksmiths, scholars, kings, ordinary and extraordinary, I lived their lives every night. But as with all dreams, I now remember only the most special. In one, I see a darkened, empty room. There is almost no furniture, an old table, a messy, half-ragged pile of bedding in one corner, a marble beside the bedding. No, not a marble. A tiny, mostly blue globe. Its nearer face, a mosaic of brown and white. I know whose room this is. Shh, says a new voice, and abruptly there are people in the room. A slight figure, half draped across the lap of another body that is larger and darker. Shh, shall I tell you a story? Mmm, says the smaller one, a child. Yes, more beautiful eyes, Papa, please. Now, now, children are not so cynical. Be a proper child, or you will never grow big and strong like me. I will never be like you, Papa. That is one of your favorite lies. I see tousled brown hair. A hand strokes it, long-fingered and graceful. The father? I have watched you grow these long ages. In ten thousand years, a hundred thousand. And will my sun-bright father open his arms when I have grown so great and welcome me to his side? A sigh. If he is lonely enough, he might. I don't want him. Fitfully, the child moves away from the stroking hand and looks up. His eyes reflect the light like those of some nocturnal beast. I will never betray you, Papa. Never. Shh. The father bends, laying a gentle kiss on the child's forehead. I know. And the child flings himself forward then, burying his face in soft darkness, weeping. The father holds him, rocking him gently, and begins to sing. In his voice I hear echoes of every mother who has ever comforted her child in the small hours, and every father who has ever whispered hopes into an infant's ear. I do not understand the pain I perceive, wrapped around both of them like chains, but I can tell that love is their defense against it. It is a private moment. I am an intruder. I loosen invisible fingers and let this dream slip through them and away. I felt the poor sleep keenly when I dragged myself awake well into the next day. The inside of my head felt muddy, congealed. I sat on the edge of the bed with my knees drawn up, gazing through the windows at a bright, clear noon sky and thinking, I am going to die. I'm going to die. In seven days, no, six now, die. I am ashamed to admit that this litany went on for some time. The seriousness of my situation had not sunk in before. Impending death had taken second place to Dar's Jeopardy and a celestial conspiracy. But now, I had no one yanking on my soul to distract me, and all I could think of was death. I was not yet twenty years old. I had never been in love. I had not mastered the nine forms of the knife. I had never... Gods! I had never really lived beyond the legacies left to me by my parents, Enu and Aramary. It seemed almost incomprehensible that I was doomed, and yet I was. Because if the Aramary did not kill me, I had no illusions about the Enifada. I was the sheath for the sword they hoped to draw against Etempus, their sole means of escape. If the succession ceremony was postponed, or if by some miracle I succeeded in becoming Descartes' heir, I was certain that Enifada would simply kill me. Clearly, unlike other Aramary, I had no protection against harm by them. Doubtless, that was one of the alterations they had applied to my blood sigil, and killing me might be the easiest way for them to free Enifa's soul with minimal harm. Sia might mourn the necessity of my death, but no one else in Sky would. So I lay on the bed and trembled and wept and might have continued to do so for the rest of the day, one-sixth of my remaining life, if there had not come a knock at the door. That pulled me back to myself, more or less. 
I was still wearing the clothes I'd slept in from the day before. My hair was mussed, my face was puffy, and my eyes red. I hadn't bathed. I opened the door a crack to see Tavril, to my great dismay, with a tray of food in one hand. Greetings, cousin. He paused, took a second look at me, and scowled. What in demons happened to you? Nothing, I mumbled, then tried to close the door. He slapped it open with his free hand, pushing me back and stepping inside. I would have protested, but the words died in my throat as he looked me up and down with an expression that would have made my grandmother proud. You're letting them win, aren't you? he asked. I think my mouth might have dropped open. He sighed. Sit down. I closed my mouth. How do you... I know nearly everything that happens in this place, Yena. The upcoming ball, for example, and what will happen afterward. Half-bloods usually aren't told, but I have connections. He gently took me by the shoulders. You found out too, I suspect, which is why you're sitting here going to rot. On another occasion, I would have been pleased that he'd finally called me by my name. Now I shook my head dumbly and rubbed my temples where a weary ache had settled. Tavril, you don't... Sit down, you silly fool, before you pass out and I have to call Varane, which incidentally you don't want me to do. His remedies are effective but highly unpleasant. He took my hand and guided me over to my table. I came because they told me you hadn't ordered breakfast or a midday meal, and I thought you might be starving yourself again. Sitting me in the tray down, he picked up a dish of some sort of sectioned fruit, speared a piece on a fork, and thrust this at my face until I ate. You seemed a sensible girl when you first came here. Gods know this place has a way of knocking the sense out of a person, but I never expected you to yield so easily. Aren't you a warrior or something like that? The rumors have you swinging through trees half-naked with a spear. I glared at him, a front cutting through my muddle. That's the stupidest thing you've ever said to me. So you're not dead yet. Good. He took my chin between his fingers, peering into my eyes. And they haven't defeated you yet. Do you understand? I jerked away from him, clinging to my anger. It was better than despair, if just as useless. You don't know what you're talking about. My people... I came here to help them. Instead, they're in more danger because of me. Yes, so I've heard. You do realize that both Rilad and Samina are consummate liars, don't you? Nothing you've done caused this. Samina's plans were set in motion long before you ever arrived in Sky. That's how this family does things. He held a chunk of cheese to my mouth. I had to bite off a piece, chew it, and swallow just to get his hand out of the way. If that's... He pushed more fruit at me. I batted the fork aside, and the fruit flew off somewhere near my bookcases. If that's true, then you know there's nothing I can do. Dar's enemies are preparing to attack. My land is weak. We can't fight off one army, let alone however many are gathering against us. He nodded, sober, and held up a new chunk of fruit for me. That sounds like Rilad. Samina is usually more subtle, but it could be either of them, frankly. Dakota hasn't given them much time to work, and they both get clumsy under pressure. The fruit tasted like salt in my mouth. Then tell me. I blinked back tears. What am I supposed to do, Tavril? You say I'm letting them win, but what else can I do? Tavril set down the dish and took my hands leaning forward. I realized suddenly that his eyes were green, though a deeper shade than my own. I had never before considered the fact that we were relatives— so few of the Aramary felt human to me, much less like family. You fight, he said, his voice low and intent. His hands gripped my own fiercely enough to hurt. You fight in whatever way you can. It might have been the strength of his grip or the urgency of his voice, but I abruptly realized something. You want to be heir yourself, don't you? He blinked in surprise and then a rueful smile crossed his face. No, he said. Not really. No one would want to be heir under these conditions. I don't envy you that. But... He looked away toward the windows, and I saw it in his eyes, a terrible frustration that must have been burning in him all his life. 
the unspoken knowledge that he was just as smart as Rilad or Samina, just as strong, just as deserving of power, just as capable of leadership. And if the chance were ever given to him, he would fight to keep it, to use it. He would fight even if he had no hope of victory, because to do otherwise was to concede that the stupid, arbitrary assignment of full-blood status had anything to do with logic, that the Amun truly were superior to all other races, that he deserved to be nothing more than a servant, as I deserved to be nothing more than a pawn. I frowned. Tavril noticed. That's better. He put the dish of fruit in my hands and stood up. Finish eating and get dressed. I want to show you something. I had not realized that it was a holiday, fire day, some almond celebration I'd heard of but never paid much attention to. When Tavril brought me out of my room, I heard the sounds of laughter and cinemite music drifting through the corridors. I had never liked the music of this continent. It was strange and arrhythmic, full of eerie minors, the sort of thing only people with refined tastes were supposed to be able to comprehend or enjoy. I sighed, thinking we were headed in that direction. But Tavril cast a grim look that way and shook his head. No, you don't want to attend that celebration, cousin. Why not? That party is for high bloods. You'd certainly be welcome, and as a half-blood, I could go too. But I would suggest that you avoid social events with our full-blooded relatives if you actually want to enjoy yourself. They have odd notions of what constitutes fun. His grim look warned me off of further questioning. This way. He led me in the complete opposite direction, down several levels and angling toward the palace's heart. The corridors were bustling with activity, though I saw only servants as we walked, all of them moving so hurriedly that they barely had time to bob a greeting at Tavril. I doubt they even noticed me. Where are they all going? I asked. Tavril looked amused. To work. I've scheduled everyone on rotating short shifts, so they've probably waited until the last minute to leave. Didn't want to miss any of the fun. Fun? Mm-hmm. We rounded a curve, and I saw a wide set of translucent doors before us. Here we are. The center yard. Now, you're friendly with Sia, so I imagine the magic will work for you. But if it doesn't, if I disappear... Just return to the hall and wait, and I'll come back to get you. What? I was growing used to feeling stupid. You'll see. He pushed the doors open. The scene beyond was almost pastoral. Would have been if I hadn't known I was in the middle of a palace hovering a half mile above the earth. We looked into some sort of vast atrium at the center of the palace, in which rows of tiny cottages bordered a cobblestone path. It surprised me to realize that the cottages were made, not of the pearly material that comprised the rest of the palace, but of ordinary stone and wood and brick. The style of the cottages varied wildly from that of the palace, too. The first sharp angles and straight lines I'd seen, and from cottage to cottage. Many of the designs were foreign to my eye, token and makadish and others including one with a striking bright gold rooftop that might have been Earton. I glanced up, realizing that the center yard sat within a vast cylinder in the body of the palace. Directly above was a circle of perfectly clear blue sky. But the whole place was silent and still. I saw no one in or around the cottages. Not even wind stirred. Tavril took my hand and pulled me over the threshold and I gasped as the stillness broke. In a moment's flicker, there were suddenly many people about, all around us, laughing and milling and exclaiming in a cacophony of joy that would not have startled me so much if it hadn't come out of nowhere. There was music, too, more pleasant than the cinemite, but still nothing I was used to. It came from much closer, somewhere in the middle of the cottages. I made out a flute and a drum, and a babble of languages. The only one I recognized was Kenty, before someone grabbed my arm and spun me around. Shaz, you came! I thought... The almond man who'd caught my hand started when he saw my face, then paled further. Oh, demons! It's all right, I said quickly. An honest mistake. From behind, I could pass for Tima, Narshes, or half the other northern races and it had not escaped me that he'd call me by a boy's name. 
That was clearly not the source of his horror. His eyes had locked on my forehead and the full blood circle there. It's all right, Tur. Tavril came up beside me and put a hand on my shoulder. This is the new one. Relief restored color to the man's face. Sorry, miss, he said, bobbing a greeting to me. I just, <laughs> well, he smiled sheepishly. You understand. I reassured him again, though I was not entirely sure that I did understand. The man wandered off after that, leaving Tavril and I to ourselves, inasmuch as we could be alone amid such a horde. I could see now that everyone present wore low-blood marks. They were all servants. There must have been nearly a thousand people in the center yard's sprawling space. Tavril was so good at keeping them unobtrusive that I'd had no idea there were this many servants in Skye though I suppose I should have guessed they would outnumber the high-bloods. Don't blame Tur, Tavril said. Today's one of the few days we can be free of rank considerations. He wasn't expecting to see that. He nodded toward my forehead. What is this, Tavril? Where did these people... A little favor from the Inafada. He gestured toward the entrance we'd just walked through and upward. There was a faint, glass-like sheen to the air all around the center yard which I had not noticed before. We stood within a huge, transparent bubble of... something. Magic, whatever it was. No one with a mark higher than quarter blood sees anything, even if they pass through the barrier, Tavril said. An exception was made for me, and as you saw, we can bring others through if we choose. This means we can celebrate without high bloods coming here to ogle our quaint common folk customs like we're animals in a zoo. I understood at last, and smiled as I did. It was probably only one of many small rebellions that the low-blood servants quietly fomented against their higher-born relations. If I stayed in Sky longer, I would probably see others. But of course, I would not live long enough for that. That thought sobered me at once, despite the music and gaiety around me. Tavril flashed me a grin and let go of my hand. Well, you're here now. Enjoy yourself for a while, hmm? And almost at the moment he let me go, a woman grabbed him and pulled him into the mass of people. I saw a flash of his red hair among other heads, and then he was gone. I'd stood where he'd left me, feeling oddly bereft. The servants celebrated on around me, but I was not part of it, nor could I relax amid so much noise and chaos, however joyous. None of these people were dare. None of them were under the threat of execution. None of them had God's soul stuffed into their bodies, tainting all that they thought and felt. Yet Tavril had brought me here in an attempt to cheer me up, and it would have been churlish to leave right away. So I looked around for some quiet spot where I might sit out of the way. My eyes caught on a familiar face, or at least, it seemed familiar at first. A young man watched me from the steps of one of the cottages, smiling as if he knew me, at least. He was a little older than me, pretty-faced and slender, Tima-looking but with completely un-Tima eyes of faded green. I caught my breath and went over to him. See ya? He grinned. Glad to see you out. You're... I gaped a moment longer, then closed my mouth. I had known all along that Nahadoth was not the only one among the Enifada who could change his form. So this is your doing, I gestured at the barrier which now I could see above us as well, like a dome. He shrugged. Tavril's people do favors for us all year. It's fitting we should pay them back. We slaves must stick together. There was a bitterness in his tone that I had not heard before. It felt oddly comforting in comparison with my own mood, so I sat down on the steps beside him, near his legs. Together we watched the celebration in silence for a long while. After a time... I felt his hand touch my hair, stroking it, and that comforted me further still. Whatever form he took, he was still the same Sia. They grow and change so fast, he said softly, his eyes on a group of dancers near the musicians. Sometimes I hate them for that. I glanced up at him in surprise. There was a strange mood indeed for him. You gods are the ones who made us this way, aren't you? He glanced at me, and for a jarring, painful instant, I saw confusion on his face. Enifa. He had spoken as if I was Enifa.
Then the confusion passed, and he shared with me a small, sad smile. Sorry, he said. I could not feel bitter about it, given the sorrow in his face. I do seem to look like her. That's not it, he sighed. It's just that sometimes, well, it feels like she died only yesterday. The God's War had occurred over 2,000 years before, by most scholars' reckonings. I turned away from Sia and sighed, too, at the width of the gulf between us. You're not like her, he said. Not really. I didn't want to talk about Anifa, but I said nothing. I drew up my knees and rested my chin on them. Sia resumed stroking my hair, petting me like a cat. She was reserved like you, but that's the only similarity. She was cooler than you, slower to anger, although she had the same kind of temper as you. I think magnificent when it finally blew. We tried hard not to anger her. You sound like you were afraid of her. Of course. How could we not be? I frowned in confusion. She was your mother. Sia hesitated, and in it I heard an echo of my earlier thoughts about the gulf between us. It's difficult to explain. I hated that gulf. I wanted to breach it, though I had no idea if that was even possible. So I said, try. His hand paused on my hair, and then he chuckled, his voice warm. I'm glad you're not one of my worshippers. You drive me mad with your demands. Would you even bother answering any prayers that I made? I could not help smiling at the idea. Oh, of course. But I might sneak a salamander into your bed to get back at you. I laughed, which surprised me. It was the first time all day that I'd felt human. It didn't last long as laughs went, but when it passed, I felt better. On impulse, I shifted to lean against his legs, putting my head on his knee. His hand never left my hair. I needed no mother's milk when I was born. Sia spoke slowly, but I did not sense a lie this time. I think it was just difficult for him to find the right words. There was no need to protect me from danger or sing me lullabies. I could hear the songs between the stars, and I was more dangerous to the worlds I visited than they could ever be to me. And yet, compared to the three, I was weak. Liked them in many ways, but obviously inferior. Naha was the one who convinced her to let me live and see what I might become. I frowned. She was going to kill you? Yes. He chuckled at my shock. She killed things all the time, Yena. She was death as well as life. The twilight along with the dawn. Everyone forgets that. I turned to stare at him, which made him draw his hand back from my hair. There was something in that gesture, something regretful and hesitant, not befitting a god at all, that suddenly angered me. It was there in his every word. However incomprehensible relationships between gods might be, he had been a child and Enifa his mother, and he had loved her with any child's abandon. Yet she had almost killed him, as a breeder calls a defective foal, or as a mother smothers a dangerous infant. No, that had been entirely different. I'm beginning to dislike this Enifa, I said. Sia started in surprise, stared at me for a long second, then burst out laughing. It was infectious, though nonsensical. Humor born of pain. I smiled as well. Thank you, Sia said, still chuckling. I hate taking this form. It always makes me maudlin. Be a child again. I liked him better that way. Can't. He gestured toward the barrier. This takes too much of my strength. Ah. I wondered suddenly, which was the default state for him, the child or this world-weary adult who slipped out whenever he let his guard down, or something else altogether. But that seemed too intimate and possibly painful a question to ask, so I did not. We fell silent a while longer, watching the servants dance. What will you do? Sia asked. I lay my head back on his knee and said nothing. Sia sighed. If I knew how to help you, I would. You know that, don't you? The words warmed me more than I'd expected. I smiled. Yes, I know. Though I can't say I understand it. 
I'm just immortal like the rest of them, Sia. Not like the rest. Yes, I looked at him. However different I might be, I did not like saying it aloud. No one stood near enough to us to overhear, but it seemed foolish to take chances. You said it yourself. Even if I lived to be a hundred, my life would still be only an eye blink of yours. I should be nothing to you, like these others. I nodded toward the throng. He laughed softly. The bitterness had returned. <laughs> oh, Yana, you really don't understand. If mortals were truly nothing to us, our lives would be so much easier. And so would yours. I could say nothing to that. So I fell silent. And he did too. And around us, the servants celebrated on. It was nearly midnight by the time I finally left the center yard. The party was still in full swing, but Tavril left with me and walked me to my quarters. He'd been drinking, though not nearly as much as some I'd seen. Unlike them, I have to be clear-headed in the morning, he said when I pointed this out. At the door of my apartment, we stopped. Thank you, I said, meaning it. You didn't enjoy yourself, he said. I saw. You didn't dance all evening. Did you even have a glass of wine? No, but it did help. I groped for the right words. I won't deny a part of me spent the whole time thinking, I'm wasting one-sixth of my remaining life. I smiled. Tavril grimaced. But to spend that time surrounded by so much joy, it did make me feel better. There was such compassion in his eyes, I found myself wondering again why he helped me. I supposed it made a difference that he had some fellow feeling for me, perhaps even liked me. It was touching to think so, and perhaps that was why I reached up to cup his cheek. He blinked in surprise, but he did not draw back. That pleased me too, and so I yielded to impulse. I'm probably not pretty by your standards, I ventured. His cheek felt slightly scratchy under my fingers, and I remembered that men of the island peoples tended to grow beards. I found the idea exotic and intriguing. A half-dozen thoughts flickered across to Rill's face in the span of a breath, then settled with his slow smile. Well, I'm not by yours either, he said. I've seen those show horses you Dare call men. I chuckled, abruptly nervous. And we are, of course, <laughs> relatives. This is Sky, cousin. Amazing how that explained everything. I opened the door to my apartment, then took his hand and pulled him inside. He was strangely gentle, or perhaps it only seemed strange to me because I had little experience to compare him against. I was surprised to find that he was even paler beneath his clothing, and his shoulders were covered in faint spots, like those of a leopard, but smaller and random. He felt normal enough against me, lean and strong, and I liked the sounds that he made. He did try to give me pleasure, but I was too tense, too aware of my own loneliness and fear, so there were no storm winds for me. I did not mind so much. I was unused to having someone in my bed, so afterward I slept restlessly. Finally, in the small hours of the morning, I got up and went into the bathroom, hoping that a bath would settle me to sleep. While water filled the tub, I ran more in the sink and splashed my face, then stared at myself in the mirror. There were new lines of strain around my eyes, making me look older. I touched my mouth, suddenly melancholy for the girl I had been just a few months before. She had not been innocent, no leader of any people can afford that, but she had been happy, more or less. When was the last time I'd felt happiness? I could not recall. Suddenly I was annoyed with Tavril. At least pleasure would have relaxed me and perhaps pulled my mood out of its grim track. At the same time, it bothered me to feel such disappointment because I liked Tavril, and the fault was as much mine as his. But on the heels of this, unbidden, came an even more disturbing thought, one that I fought for long seconds, caught between morbid, forbidden thrill fascination and superstitious fear. I knew why I had found no satisfaction with Tavril. Never whisper his name in the dark. No. This was stupidity. No, 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 unless you want him to answer. There was a terrible, mad recklessness inside me. 
It whirled and crashed in my head, a cacophony of not-quite-thought. I could actually see it manifest as I stared into the mirror. My own eyes stared back at me, too wide, the pupils too large. I licked my lips, and for a moment they were not mine. They belonged to some other woman, much braver and stupider than me. The bathroom was not dark because of the glowing walls, but darkness took many forms. I closed my eyes and spoke to the blackness beneath my lids. Nahadoth, I said. My lips barely moved. I had given the word only enough breath to make it audible and no more. I didn't even hear myself over the running water and the pounding of my heart. But I waited. Two breaths, three. Nothing happened. For an instant, I felt utterly irrational disappointment. This was followed swiftly by relief and fury at myself. What in the maelstrom was wrong with me? I had never in my life done anything so foolish. I must have been losing my mind. I turned away from the mirror, and as I did, the glowing walls went dark. What? I began, and a mouth settled over mine. Even if logic hadn't told me who it was, that kiss would have. There was no taste to it, only wetness and strength, and a hungry, agile tongue that slid around mine like a snake. His mouth was cooler than Tavril's had been, but a different kind of heat coiled through me in response, and when hands began to explore my body, I could not help arching up to meet them. I breathed harder as the mouth finally relinquished mine and moved down my neck. I knew I should have stopped him. I knew this was his favorite way to kill. But when unseen ropes lifted me and pinned me to the wall, and the fingers slipped between my thighs to play a subtle music, thinking became impossible. That mouth, his mouth, was everywhere. He must have had a dozen of them. Every time I moaned or cried out, he kissed me, drinking down the sound like wine. When I could restrain myself, his face pressed into my hair. His breath was light and quick in my ear. I tried to reach up. I think to embrace him, but nothing was there. Then his fingers did something new and I was screaming, screaming at the top of my lungs, except that he had covered my mouth again and there was no sound, no light, no movement. He had swallowed it all. There was nothing but pleasure, and it seemed to go on for an eternity. If he had killed me right then and there, I would have died happy. And then it was gone. I opened my eyes. I sat slumped on the bathroom floor. My limbs felt weak, shaky. The walls were glowing again. Steaming water filled the tub beside me to the brim. The taps were closed. I was alone. I got up and bathed, then returned to bed. Tavril murmured in his sleep and threw an arm over me. I curled against him and told myself for the rest of the night that I was still trembling because of fear. Nothing else.